I had to watch a lot of like um, videos of climate deniers to understand their perspective and like to argue like them and I felt so stupid saying the things I was saying so Hello, hello, I'm Prey, short for Prerna, also known as the girl inside Traveler's Shoes and this is Yours Curiously, where I bring in some of my favorite people, get personal and go deep on diverse interests, beliefs and well things you and I have probably wondered about at some point and find out exactly what makes these people tick. And while we're doing that, entertain just a teeny bit of our curiosity at a time. Sharavi is one of the founding members of Fridays for Future India. On today's episode, we talk about her motivation to join climate activism, the importance of climate education, how activism has transformed in the age of social distancing, and what is 1.5 and why it matters. Disha has a strong voice, and I'm going to go ahead and quote her. Millions of people are affected by climate crises every single day, but there is no action and I've stopped waiting for any. We the youth will take action and we will unite and organize for a just and equitable future. End quote. But first, I'd like to have a word with you about Don't Talk That Trash. Like what you hear, you love what I write. Don't talk that trash is my personal letter straight to your inbox. At the end of every month, I sit down on my desk, open my laptop and write. There's just one catch. No editing. It contains raw thoughts on whatever occupies my mind at the moment and quite a nice way to wrap up a month. Curious? You can get your own by visiting InsideTravelersShoes.com forward slash subscribe. Don't talk that trash subscribers are also the first ones to know when I whip up something fun and receive cool bonuses from time to time. Oh hey, it's free and email only. So what are you waiting for? Check out InsideTravelersShoes.com forward slash subscribe. Again, InsideTravelersShoes.com forward slash subscribe and read the very next one. Now back to the episode. It's a beautiful evening and I am sitting in the evening sun in this beautiful property called Small World in Bangalore with Disha next to me and we are going to talk about climate change maybe hard topics for some but it is necessary. And the first time I met you I remember that you were asking people that climate change is real you wanted them to convince you that and it was kind of odd for me and i found myself trying very hard to convince you that climate change is real so tell me why did you do that and uh, how did you come up with that um so we were at under 25 because uh, we had done a project with them we had a clean up drive and so they had given us a stall in under 25 and we thought Now let's use this opportunity to bring more people into Fridays for Future Karnataka. Um, so I was like, okay, what's the best way to convince people? And there was one of my team members. His name is Deepthi. He handles all our documentation, photography, videography, all the creative side. Nice guy. <laughs> yeah, very nice guy. Um, and he was like, you know what? We should, you know, we should have one of those. We he remembered some videos. I don't, I don't actually know who that guy is. but apparently he does uh, and i've seen these in memes 
where there will be like something super obvious and then they'll be like change my mind so we were like okay we will say climate change isn't real and we'll ask people to change our mind and uh, so a lot of people would come up to me trying to tell me why climate change is real and all of that so essentially what we wanted to do was use reverse psychology to convince people why if they're so passionate about the climate crisis and you know uh, why aren't they doing anything about it or how they can do something about it so once they told me why it's real and how they can tackle it so it would always go with why do you think climate change is not real and like because the weather's always changing <laughs> um, so that was one thing and then they'll be like uh, okay and then I'd like okay okay I'm a little convinced but what be, what can people do about it and then they try to tell me like you know this and this and this and then I'd be like yeah but what about all those mass movements you've heard that uh, Friday so should I don't they usually be like yeah and then they're like why don't you join them <laughs> then I tell them yeah this is us from FFF and uh, we're trying to get people to understand why they're not participating in uh, fighting for uh, climate justice if they know that climate change is real. So, and it worked really well because you got a lot of members and that's how I met you and here we are. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, it worked really well. That's so creative, you know. And I remember specifically what I told. You know, I was uh, remembering my time in the mountains and the plastic dumps and... Uh, fact that you know there's no cap peaks you know yeah. there is vegetation in places where there isn't supposed mm-hmm. to be and you were like that's nice that's good right yeah <laughs> that's good no ice is good people can live oh my god I, I i had to watch a lot of like um videos of climate deniers to understand their perspective and like to argue like them and i felt so stupid saying the things i was saying so that was definitely interesting <laughs> so tell me how did you get involved with Fridays for Future? Um so last year in 2019 in around Jan Feb I was watching all the climate strikes happening around the world and um I was like I I knew the climate crisis was a real issue and I wanted to do something about it and I was like okay this is an outlet and I saw that there was no one doing it in India When was this? Um this was around fab ending around the beginning of March March 1st 2nd oh, third year. Yeah like a year ago in 2019 to 2019. Yeah. So I put out like an Instagram story like hey uh, you know the climate checks are happening it's supposed to be on the 15th of this month uh the climate crisis is real we need to do something about it uh, if anyone wants to join in hit me up and then one of my very close friends uh Shreya she texted me and she's just like you know there's this other um, girl i saw sharing posts saying that she wanted to do as well and her name was amrita and so i text amrita and i'm like hey amrita what about this and she's like oh wait i got it from this other person called karen and so i texted karen and i was like okay um, i wanted to do something about it because i have seen that you also want to do something about it so let's do it together and she's like absolutely and so um she's like i'm trying to get ff started in india and i'm like okay, okay perfect because i want to do the same thing and uh, she's like okay that's amazing because where do you live and i was like i'm in bangalore she was in bangalore too which was perfect and then she's like someone from mumbai and delhi had also reached out to her uh, asking you know uh, if they can help with this and maybe start a chapter in yeah, india yeah start a chapter in india so it's all very blurry because we were also hyped up that we're going to do this in like uh 
we didn't realize it would grow to be as big as it is now. Yeah, now it is so big. I see chapters everywhere. In Alapi, I didn't expect the chapter to be there. I was looking for something in Cochin. Yeah. But then I was like, Alapi, Kerala has a chapter. It does, it does. I know the person there. We have 60 plus chapters now and one entirely indigenous run chapter. It's in Jharkhand. It's amazing. I can't believe it. I mean, I can't. Like, so many people have built this from this from scratch and they worked so hard and it's such an honor and privilege to work with them. And uh, I, I've learned so much from everyone in the movement. And it's, we're non-hierarchical, so everyone has the same say in, in it. And it's such a, such a learning experience every single day. Um, I'm, so, I'm just so grateful for like, the entire community in general. That's so beautiful. Yeah. So for people who don't know, can you explain exactly what Fridays for Future is? Yeah, so Fridays for Future was a movement started by Greta Thunberg in Sweden back in September 2018. So she started striking outside the Swedish parliament because she understood that the climate crisis is a real issue. And she's like, why, why isn't it on, like, on all the mainstream media? Why aren't we talking about this? So she started striking, started skipping school every day initially, and then she went out only to Fridays. She mentioned that's because Fridays is the only day she has the least amount of school, so she doesn't have as many classes. <laughs> that's why it's called Fridays for Future. Oh, that's a beautiful story. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it soon started spreading. She convinced her classmates and other people. In Sweden, they started striking. It picked up, like, a lot in Europe, and it spread like wildfire. She started posting online. That's how it spread. But yeah, it spread all across Europe, and I was watching this, and that's when they called for a global strike. And I was like, you know, we are one of the most affected regions. Uh, so India is supposed to be one of the most affected countries by the climate crisis, and like, why aren't we talking about it? Why aren't we leading the change? So that's why that's why we started it, because we wanted to be a part of the conversation. Because now I believe we should be conversation because most impacted people so yeah that's why we started FFF and all it, we were so small we didn't even think 100 people showed up to our first strike we didn't even think 10 people would show up we thought it would be just us holding posters it was amazing that's how it is you know you don't expect much of it but yeah. then you get this overwhelming response and it kind of makes you want to you know take this forward right yeah and then how did you come across it uh, Fridays for Future it was on the internet. It was just because, like, everyone was sharing about it on Twitter, on, like, social media. And I was like, finally, a group of people, especially young people, are doing something about it. And as a young person, I felt motivated to do that in my country as well. Mm, that's so nice. So when did you start activism? If act um, so I was an animal rights activist back in, like, 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when I went vegan, and um, I, I was really passionate. I'm, I still am today about animal rights because I do feel like animals are just as important as any other human being, uh, sorry, any other species on the planet. I'm just not as vocal about it now because I'm so involved in climate activism, and activism, I don't think a lot of people speak about how draining it can be. And it is very draining. It, it has a huge impact on my mental health, and I don't have the mental capacity to do both anymore. So I had to pick one, and I picked the climate change because I needed more people to be talking about that. Yeah, I think, you know, people are already having a conversation about animal rights, but not a lot of people 
want to talk about climate change? I'm not sure. I think it differs from region to region mm. because in India, at least, I'm not sure because I've been involved in most, like, both spaces, so I'm in both the bubbles. So are the outer response, like, what happens outside our, like, bubble, like, because most of my friends are climate activists. Most of my friends already know about this because I don't stop talking about it. So I'm not sure what the outside world thinks, so... Fully. I think I've tried to ascertain it, but um, I think there's, like, more conversation about the climate crisis, but not the urgency of it. Like, more people know that this is happening, but uh, they don't know how it's happening now. If they think it's a problem of the future, well, it's the problem of the present. So, yeah. I think that's how it is, you know. You can see the changes right now, but we don't actually acknowledge it sometimes. Yeah. Hmm? So, how did you start thinking about climate change and everything? Was it in your childhood? It was, and this isn't something I talk about much, but my grandparents are farmers. So, I grew up a lot on, you know, with them, and uh, they used to have a lot of water issues. Like, uh, they would either have, like, no water, they'd go for the longest period without any water, and their crops would suffer, and, like, we wouldn't have... So, how long are we talking about? Like... They would go for like a week or two without water, and that's any kind of water, not even drinking. No, they can drink water, but not enough water to like grow crops. Like luckily, they had drinking water. They had water to you know for recreational purposes, but not enough to grow crops. It was the bare minimum, and uh, the crops would dry out because of that, or they weren't able to grow crops that were more water intensive, but that could you know give them a better price in the market. Um, this happened, and it would be either that or the most extreme situation where it would rain heavily and all the crops would die out because of the rain, and they'd either have no crops at the end of it. One of the most noticeable things that I remember was, like, I would sometimes wake up in the middle of the night and find my granny walking all around the house, and, and it took, like, when I asked my grandparents, and they're like, oh, she has to go switch on the water in the middle of the night. So we lived in the middle of the farm, and uh, she had to walk all the way down to the farm. In the middle, like, as a child, I thought there was a ghost house because it was the small room where the water pump was. And she had to go in the middle of the night, walk all the way from the house to that pump in the middle of the farm where you can't see, there's no light. There's barely any electricity. Even today, even when they have, you know, began to uh, give electricity to villages, they only get electricity for, uh, like, five hours in the morning, it's four hours in the morning, and like four hours in the evening, and that's it. They don't have any, any time else. And even back then, it was the, that was the case. And they would switch on the water specifically at like 3 a.m. or 4 a.m., and it would run for an hour or two. So the minute, you know, the electricity came in in the early hours of morning, and the water pump was turned on, she had to go and switch it on, because that's when they got water. I could also see how gender played a role in it, but I didn't realize any of this, and I didn't realize this was because of the climate crisis until, like, I grew up, and in school they taught us absolutely nothing about the climate crisis except the ozone layer and how it has holes in it. And I was like, poor ozone layer, man. I also remember the ozone layer. I was so concerned about it. Oh, why do we keep using CFCs? Yeah. <laughs> and that's... Yeah, but, like, I'm glad the ozone is like getting better now but uh, and yeah and I didn't realize any of this is the, the climate crisis and also nothing was taught in school and my pre-university I didn't 
study this anywhere because I did a very business oriented course I did commerce and like they don't teach this there mm-hmm. and funny when I did, came to college and it was like um, things had gotten better for my grandparents and they would always talk about now they're like uh, so g- luckily the government did one thing right and they set up more water pipelines from the river and all of that but uh, that was one of my pa- one of my grandparents and my other one still suffered from the water crisis. Uh, luckily, they aren't farmers, even though they belong to the same family. He's retired now. But uh, every time I go over to his house, even today, he's like, you can only use one bucket of water for shower. Every time the municipality or the surrounding area, they switch on the water, he will run and switch on the water to, so that it goes up to the tank and all of that, even every single day. And the minute it fills off, he'll stop it. He's so particular about water wastage. And like, you can't waste water while washing your face for two minutes. <laughs> so all of this, and he is so concerned. Like he grows, like everyone in my family, I think, grows their own plants or like food. Even my mom, like we have in, uh, we have like a community garden. Like mm-hmm. one of our neighbors has just given the their land to the entire community. So everyone in the layout comes together and they grow food there. So even my grandpa does that. Everyone just grows food. It's it's so beautiful because no one's paying rent for it no one's paying it's someone's land that they've just given out just so that people can benefit off of it and it's better for the yeah, environment yeah it is well. so much better for the environment because we're growing our own food no packaging yeah and just the fact that the community comes together to work together and then it's, it's like screw capitalism <laughs> it's just a lovely feeling and so he grows his own uh, plants and my other grandparents they live close by so they you know, give them what they grow also. But this one also suffers from the water crisis more than... And the fact that you don't have access to safe drinking water, the more I read about it, like, this September, the Financial Express put out a a report that said more than 50% of the population in India doesn't have access to safe water. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot. That's, like, billions of people. Most of rural India. Yeah, and most of it is from rural India. These are the people who have contributed the least to the climate crisis, but they're the worst affected. So um, I found out all about this only when I was in the last year of my college, and that's why I was like, I can't not do anything about this. There's absolutely no conversation about how this is a present event, and it's a current issue, and so it's just a future, future, future. It's the future for the white men. That's why it's seen as a future issue. It's also a racial issue because if the white people were affected now, there'd be probably be more conversation about it because it's, but it's because it's, you know, the people of color or black people in... Uh, people from underdeveloped nations. Yeah, underdeveloped according to them, nations. Yeah. It's not It's not on the current news, if, but if it was, say, a white man who was sitting in his AC room suffering from the climate crisis, I bet you it would be on all the front pages. The climate crisis, one of my friend Aisha, mm-hmm. she always says that climate justice is not just an issue of the rich and the white, and I think that's very, it's very powerful to me. It is an issue for everyone. Yeah. Like, you know, if something goes wrong with our planet, I mm-hmm. think everyone is going to suffer for it. Yeah. And your story about, you know, your beginnings and your village and water scarcity reminded of my own village Mm -hmm. where something similar happened. So I think late last year, Mm -hmm. I decided that, you know, I just wanted to quit living in the city for a while. And I moved to my village to stay with my grandparents. They also had a huge water crisis Mm -hmm. over there. There was, I think, for for an hour or two. And sometimes, you know, 
maybe after two days or three days there would be water supply and all those all that water would have worms in them yeah and they would use that and i remember that you know there's one specific time and all of us rushed over there and you know i used to help them get these um buckets of water yeah. from that place and i would carry them to the house and you know fill all the utensils we have with water yeah and my mom used to do that when we lived in malayshwaram and you know i i was kind of irked by those insects but then i started living with them and i'm like it's okay people live like this and yeah. they're not doing any harm it's okay and even when we had to you know the switch on the motor it would be for an half an hour or yeah. something and i i was just uh, in the middle of it all you understand how important it is and how privileged we are living in here yeah exactly no even on like before like we lived in malayshwaram for a year when i was very small and i was like 4 or 5 years old i remember my mom used to carry like wake up at 6am to carry water to wash the clothes you do all of it by hand and and that also shows like the in, in gender inequality because i remember my grandma doing all the water chores and my mom is doing all of this social pressure so there's also like a gender thing and yeah we'd fill up every single like even my grandpa now he fills up every single bucket of water is filled to the brim with water with that water supply yeah i i like I, i get what you mean and like the water we used to get before was filled with just like were these rocky salty things would be hard water not like the not the nicest water it would be filled with dirt and like stones weird stones very harsh stones even the water in bangalore the kaveri yeah. water is pretty bad it is i came back from alappi and i had a lot of hair loss no i get what you mean it it's it's just hard water that's not good for you what are some of the issues mm-hmm. that are you know relevant now what is happening right now what is important right now what should we focus on um uh, the water crisis is obviously an ongoing issue and there's so little spoken about it so little like mm-hmm. I, i like even to cite quotations there's like so little research done on it and there's leave the research aside there's so much there's la- the lack of action around it is really sad and the air pollution is an ongoing issue is like the air. in like ng road this uh, really nice ngo called jatka they have installed this lungs that breathe mm-hmm. and like the first 10 days it was white lungs and now if you go in it's like gray it's getting ash so how does that AQI. work um so it's just like a respiratory system it takes in the air mm-hmm. and you can see it's getting dirty because of how bad the aqi is and they even have like an aqi a quality index mm-hmm. machine which says that it's when i last was there it was around 64 68 it was fluctuating like the aqi is supposed to be around 40 50 and how long ago was this this was very recent this was like this was in november at 28 what were the lungs made of you know i'm not sure i'll have to check with them but uh, it's a pretty good system and you can see the air quality index it's supposed to be what measures set according to you and the good safe air quality is supposed to be around 40 50 this is 60 that's is bangalore and um it's in delhi it's way worse it's around 100 we are breathing in toxic air and it's going to affect us like around 2 lakh people died last year 
and not last year, by about 2018, from just air pollution related issues. That's a lot of people to be dying from this. And no, it's, there's not a lot of conversation about it. And like the farmers issues, um, it is very important because climate justice is intersectional and farmers are on the front line of the climate crisis. And when the government passes reforms to existing farming laws and makes it pro-corporate, who's benefiting off it? Because 60% of the country depends on farming as a livelihood. We, we depend on the farmers for our food. Yeah. I mean, the whole of the country depends on them. Yeah, and now they're passing reforms that are going to benefit, like, big corporations like Ambani and Adani. So it's going to benefit them, and it's not going to benefit the farmers. So what's the priority here? And, like, 250 million people are striking against it in India, and it's still not the front news in all the world newspapers. 250 million people is close to the population of the entire U.S., and what are we doing about it? Pretty much nothing. Yeah, and like, it's brutal. So these are some of the issues that are happening right now. Is Indian media covering it? Okay, so what I heard from speaking to some of the people, uh, farmers on ground was, uh, media agencies have been advised not to talk about it except for a few keywords. They, like, they can't mention a lot of things and they have to follow like, a strict set of guidelines for talking about the farmers issue, which is just where, whatever, what is freedom of speech then? Exactly. Um, internationally, there is some coverage of, about it, but not as much as it should be. Like, these protests have been going on for, like, since October, October, November, and December, it's ongoing. And, like, it only became, you know, uh, even relevant when they started marching towards Delhi because they're blocking the highways, because that was the intention. And now they've let them inside Delhi and, you know, peaceful way after, after firing water can cannons on them and, like, guns on them and all of the violence, they've let them peacefully sit there. But, like, the fact that 250 million people are striking and it's not the front page of news of every news outlet in the world, it's just really concerning. I don't even know how to put that into words, because that's millions of people, yeah. I wanted to know, uh, you know, what was your experience talking to these farmers firsthand? What did they have to say about it, and what are their grievances, maybe? That, they think, every, they had a conversation with the government quite recently, I think on the 9th of uh, December and... Uh, Where are these farmers from? Uh, all of these are the ones in Delhi. We have uh, our Delhi chapter, FF Delhi. They are on the ground supporting the farmers and uh, covering it, documenting it. I think you might have heard of Akshay Kapoor. He's part of FF Delhi. He's one of the uh, main photographers involved and he has a team of other people. He's been documenting the protests and there's Lakshay who's also been providing support on ground. These people are doing amazing work. And uh, they connected me to a farmer so that we can amplify their voices internationally. And they were talking about how, when they spoke to the government, they invited the government invited the farming leaders for a conversation. They didn't take heed to any of the farming demands. And it was an absolute joke that their demands weren't even heard. Like, whatever the government is offering is ridiculous. It's not nothing better. So they, they said they will continue striking. What exactly happened? Like, how... What happened? Like, why weren't their demands heard? Like, what did it's, they do when they met them then? Honestly, it was just, I think, for the sake of, like, 
you know, media to like calm everyone down. Because when we met them, I just know like a short story. I don't know the whole thing, but what happened was that they, they were luckily it was quite civil and everything. But uh, they heard them whatever they had to say, and everything was like, oh, but see, we're trying to you know uh, remove the middlemen and you know make it online. But how many of our farmers are you know educated enough and have internet access to? you know, put their prices on this thing and they're like, they're not going to remove MSP and all of that. But the farmers aren't convinced given how previously it has gone when uh, they've done similar things like this. And when they asked them to withdraw the laws, they straight up said no. So it's not going to happen. It just, it was a lot of sugar coating everything. It's, it's kind of disheartening, you know, listening to all this and what happens in our country and that we don't even get to speak about it. I yeah. mean, we don't speak about it. It's not that we don't get to. We just choose not to. Yeah. A lot of us. So tell me, uh, what work have you done as part of Fridays for Future before and after COVID? How has it changed, you know, after all of us started sitting mm -hmm. in our houses? And what was it like before? So January of this year, we were out on the streets. We were striking physically because... Uh, Bangalore had a new, the KRDCL was cutting trees around Sajapur. And there all. was some ring road project. Yeah, the ring road project. I think I was also there for it. Yeah, I think you were there. Um, so we were striking for that in Sajapur and all of that. And uh, in February came and uh, January we even had national coordinators meet. So everyone, um, we, met, we all met at Mumbai. There were like 10 cities. Um, which is a lot because like people couldn't you know come in person but yeah it was really nice and we all met and it feels like another year at this point and we got so many things done we're like okay plan the entire year out no one like saw covid around the corner nothing and fab fab was when like i think more issues came out and we were all like oh, okay it's still in another country it's not going to come to us even though it's unable yeah. uh, that's what I felt too, you know. Yeah. I went to Alapi thinking that I went in March. Yeah. I had no clue. People were like, oh, there there are two cases there. I'm like, it's okay, I'm going there. Yeah, yeah. there's two cases. You can be contained two cases. Yeah, I thought it would be very, way more contained. And like, it's not, yeah, but then everything started closing now. And we started working from home. And like, we were, at first we were like, okay, we have to digital strike now. We don't know how effective that'll be. And eventually we got used to it and we were like planning digital actions. We had Twitter storms and... How do digital strikes work? Okay, so digital strikes personally, I don't think have a huge impact. So basically you uh, take a picture of yourself and you know, uh, with a poster or a placard saying, I'm digital striking for so and so. And you post it with the relevant hashtag, it definitely helps getting the hashtag trending. So awareness wise, it's good. But actual measurable impact wise, I don't think so. But see, since we had to move online, so did the government offices. So any form of objections, everything had to be sent over email and tweeted to the relevant offices. So what we did was we organized email storms. And one of the main things was the environmental impact uh, assessment. There was a new draft that came out and, and they left a notification. They were like, send emails to this particular email with all your objections. EIA, right? Yeah, the EIA and suggestion and we built a tweet storm about sorry an email storm around it we had like an objection 
because it wasn't good it was again pro uh, corporates and it took away the rights of people to object cuz they added more and more projects where the whole corporation or whatever they're doing they don't have to do an environmental impact assessment or for it the the people couldn't um, come and object against that and they were trying to pass that ei that's like the brief there are so many issues under the ei but this is most in the most common way that the most problematic thing like you can take away indigenous land and you don't even have to inform them about it and like that's what happened to democracy what happened to our right to dissent and object when it directly affects us right so we had an email storm where people could come to our website read the email if they're okay with it if they hit send it would directly take them to the gmail but they can still edit it out and they hit have they just have to hit send it, it's a two minute work and we were able to uh, so the objection date was pushed uh first till june or july i'm not sure i get confused between those two months and we managed to send as just ff india 1 lakh emails oh amazing yeah and we had never mobilized that many people on i think there. i also sent an email yeah yeah <laughs> <Yay. Part of it. laughs> see we were able to reach so many people to send emails and that was just the first month and just just ff because there were a lot of environmental movements doing it um it was also pushed and there was like a legal action by a few of the people who were involved we had a coalition of all with all the environmental movements to fight the eia because it was so bad and um, a few of the lawyers in the supreme court had especially filed saying you know this isn't democratic because this was passed during uh when we were all in lockdown where we can't object where there wasn't and they had to translate the eia to different languages and it was just in english so that other people can understand uh so that wasn't done so it was violating quite a few um legalities so it was pushed to another date and by the end of that day we've managed to get a million people to send emails not just as fff as fff and as the entire coalition because our website got taken down after the first emails yeah what was that about you know yeah so our website got taken on the after the date we found out the next day uh, the, that was the last day and everyone got pumped we made a video a popular youtuber posted it and it went viral and like 40000 signatures in one night then we wake up the next morning to find our website non existent it's like not it's not opening to us anymore and then we got a we didn't know why it happened we emailed our web Uh, service providers and they were like we don't know what it is but we have been asked by the government to take it down and if this was directly by the government and we were like why and uh, we filed an rti and then we checked and we got an email saying it's because uh, we were sending too many emails and it was a uapa we got a uapa slammed into us uh, which What's is a uap that's an unlawful activities prevention act it's basically the government calling us terrorists and we got the entire legal notification by the government they said you've been notified under uapa for sending way too many emails to prakash javedkar who's our environmental minister his email id but the issue is that you requested objections to be sent to this email so some people cc uh, the environmental minister but it's a public email we are allowed to write to him we are supposed to write to him so you can't blame us for emailing it will be well within our right to do all of this so we got um, we reached out to 
uh, Internet Freedom Foundation, they had also heard about it. And we had a few mutual connections. We reached out to them for help. And shout out to Internet Freedom Foundation for all the great work they're doing. <laughs> all of, and they took up the case, all pro bono, and they did such an amazing job. And we filed RTIs, and we, we uh, sent a representation in saying that uh, this is what we did, this is the email content, and this is how many people sent it. Um, everything was, you know, well, we, all of everything we did was well within our rights to do. And uh, and there was so much media picked it up, like the fact that children, little children, are sending emails is threatening enough to call us terrorists is just bizarre. No one's ever heard of that before. Um, so, so the media picked it up and the police were under pressure, so they had to take it out. The UAPA was like the police and uh, the ministry had to withdraw the UAPA against us, so we were, we were in the clear. Uh, but yeah, the fact that they'd go to this lens to just silence the voices of children who are sending emails is absolutely interesting. And then after a while, uh, we got our website back, but we, we also had another website just as a backup. We got, um, once the website got taken on, we got another one just to make sure. We weren't sure because even our lawyers told us that you may or may not get the website back, you never know. And we... In a time when digital spaces like this, like our website is key to our, to push out all our email storms and our Twitter storms, the fact that like our voices were silenced to such an extent, so we had to get another one. And so we had to get another one, but we eventually did get this back after like uh, 14, 15 days. How did that happen? It just popped back up. Oh, good. <laughs> we didn't like, uh, since it was denotified, I guess, they had to send it to the website web providers and it popped back up that luckily. Uh, we also denied, uh, we also emailed them back saying, listen, everything, this is everything we did, nothing's fair, but they didn't email us back. They didn't do anything. There's no other communication, it just popped back up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we uh, we still continue to run it in our other website and uh, and all out of environmental movements like Let India Breathe, Extinction Rebellion, they were also doing email storms because all of us have different audiences and we wanted to reach as many as possible. It's not about which environmental organization is going to pick this up. It's about always and always about working together because that's the only way we're going to get changed because the more people that are united, there's this quote that says, people united can never be defeated. And I really like it because that's why what I do with FF is also about uh, bringing people together. It's all about connections. Um, so we connect to different environmental groups on the ground, we connect to Dalit rights, and we connect internationally to other groups that uh, amplifying voices, so essentially amplify the most underrepresented uh, people in the environmental spaces internationally so that they can talk because it's their voices that needs to be heard. So uh, by the end of the EAI objection, we managed to send a million emails, not just like FF, all environmental groups, mm-hmm. Uh, there was uh, like a newspaper article, I think, by Times of India that said one million emails sent because we had all filed an RTIs asking the government to uh, understand how many emails they received as an objection, and the RTI came back with one million emails. Wow. Yeah. And I don't think we would have ever mobilized one million people to strike on the ground because also striking can be ableist because not everyone can come out of the houses, not everyone can, you know, walk long distances. So we made sure this was accessible to everyone who, with just with just internet, you could send it. So it was amazing. 
So simple yet powerful. Yeah, it was. And we found that Twitter storms um, and everything were really, really powerful. What are Twitter storms like? Um, so basically, we for if there's an issue, um, so recently we had a Twitter storm. There's a Twitter storm, I believe, today at like five for Save Tano, which is this um, area. And they're cutting out a lot of cheese and uh, they're having a Twitter storm. So basically, there's a Twitter deck prepared with uh, suggested tweets about what the issue is, who you're supposed to be tagging, like... Um, authoritative figures who can actually, uh, you know, withdraw the things. So the people in power and uh, other influencers who have authority over the people in power. So if we were targeting the ministry, well, the influencer power would be the minister of environment or minister of, um, like, the same along the same resources. So a list of all of their accounts and how you could tag. And certain suggested tweets. There's also, like, a click to tweet. So you can go under a a tweet and you can just click on it it'll take you to your twitter account and you can just it'll already be filled in you just have to hit one button oh, perfect yeah so we mobilize people to do it so uh, how it gets trending on twitter is per second of tweets so for two hours some 30 40 people sometimes even 60 100 people are just tweeting they do nothing except tweet this is so they usually have tweets drafted out or they use that uh, the Twitter bank we do, which has over 100, 120, 150 tweets. Just copy paste it, copy paste it, and then they come back. We use a common hashtag to be make it easy finder. Once you're done with 10 tweets, you come back, search the hashtag, see others with the same tweets, retweet it. So this way, there's momentum picking up. It becomes we manage to do 20,000 tweets in two hours sometimes, mm. and it gets trending. So there's more awareness about it. People, we, this is Twitter is a great place because you can directly talk to authorities. There's a high chance that there are 20,000 tweets aimed at you. You're probably going to look at your notifications. So, and probably respond. Yeah. So one of that, that's one of our most effective ways because everyone can take part of that. So it's been super accessible and we have, we've had other digital actions, uh, it depends on like which campaign, but these are in email storms or Twitter storms are absolutely the most effective ones. You can also like call your MP and talk to them. You can give suggestions because we are in a, in a supposedly democratic country, so you can initiate that conversation. Most people know, don't know about this. We're making the information more available and accessible. Um, so yeah, digital striking is way, way more effective um, I wouldn't say way more effective, but it's way more accessible. Um, it's definitely super, super effective. And the best part of it is it's measurable impact. You can measure exactly how many people came, exactly how many people had the conversation, exactly how many people sent it, which is harder to do in physical strikes. Mm -hmm. uh, so I personally prefer digital, even though I do love physical striking. And the energy that comes from I it. I swear. Um, I think a mixture of both is super, super important. And before we didn't do as much to, uh, digital stuff, but now it's definitely uh, a key to one of our functionings. Of, yeah. Yeah, because physical and digital both have their own pros and cons. And yeah. I think, you know, you have to take the, make the most of both of them. Yeah, definitely. And hopefully, you know, when we get out of this, mm -hmm. the physical strikes will be back.
I, I knew we've already had a physical strike. It was socially distanced, masked and everything. Oh, perfect. It was in November the 28th. We had an Asia climate rally. We, our theme in India was to unite against the farmers' strikes and support them. Uh, so it was on a Saturday. We all came together and we had a very socially distanced strike about uh, why the farming issues is important and everything. And we had another digital strike uh, just very recently in December around the 11th yeah about uh, why we need to fight for 1.5 because december 12th is the anniversary of the Paris agreement but these are really technical things which require way backstory but but why don't you you know explain at least a bit so we can understand what 1.5 is um so i didn't know about this and a lot of people obviously don't know about it because there's no climate education uh to at least the working class and the common citizens only do very rich kids in India. So 1.5 is basically the degrees, world degrees that of greenhouse gas emissions we need to be at to prevent any type of climate catastrophe. We are currently at 1.2 degrees. It sounds like very small numbers, like 1.2, 1.5, it's like a 0.3 degree change in temperature, the global temperature rise. How is that going to make a huge difference? But it is. It's not just, you know, like weather temperature where you think like it's 21 degrees Celsius now and if it goes to 24 degrees Celsius, there's not a huge difference. This is the global emissions temperature. So there's a huge difference in even a 0.1 percentage. So we are currently at 1.2 global greenhouse gas emissions temperature and we have to prevent it from going to 1.5 and we have 10 years to do it. Oh, no, actually, it's supposed to be like five or six years now because we haven't done anything. Um, so otherwise, we will in inevitably hit 1.5 in like the next five, six, seven years. Because there will be a lot of difficulty in undoing the damage we've already done. Yeah, definitely. And uh, so five years ago, on December 12th, world leaders came together in Paris and signed what is very famously known in the climate movement and the climate space as the Paris Agreement. And what about it. Yeah. And in the Paris Agreement, they said that they will keep global temperature rise below 1.5 degrees. And But it's been five years since they made that promise and they have done absolutely nothing about it. If anything, they've made things worse, especially in India. Even though we're meeting our... Um, NDCs, it's very low. We have opened up 41 coal mines. We've auctioned it out for corporate use. And we are passing reforms like the EIA, which is detrimental to the people and you know benefiting um, corporations once again. We have given approvals for 200 plus deforestation projects in India alone this year, in 2020, sorry. Um, that is in a lot of these are in eco-sensitive zones. A lot of these are home to indigenous people who are the protectors of the environment more than anyone else. And if you're going down this way, how are you going to protect it? Because we are already facing the climate crisis. We've had four floods. We've had 50% age of the population have no access to water. So, And, and also a lot of uh, storms coming yeah, in. Yeah, a lot of storms coming in. And... And it's really, really scary to be living, and this is just 1.2, imagine, at 1.5, like, millions, if it, we're at 50 now, probably, I, I don't want to state 
it's not facts because I'm not a scientist, but it's uh, but 1.5 is predicted to be much much worse. That is going to be increased flooding instead of the flooding being a flooding season. There's a flooding season in India. It's going it's going to be everyday occurrences, and these are facts. And uh, people are not going to have access to water. Like according to the Niti Aayog report, Bangalore, our city, isn't supposed to have water in the next two years, and underground levels of water it's not going to be there in the next two years how much worse is it and if this is just at one point two imagine like six five to six years seven years down the line when we're supposed to reach 1.5 and things continue like this it's going to be a huge difference like people aren't going to have access to water people aren't going to have people are going to get flooded people aren't going to have any clean air because out of the most polluted countries in the world India, out of like there were thirty countries, and India, India had twenty-one cities amongst them. Wow! <laughs> out of thirty, nothing to be proud about. Yeah, it? nothing to be proud of. We are twenty-one out of thirty. All of these poly- most polluted cities in the world. We're breathing very, very toxic air, and we're just at one point two, and a zero point three percent rise is not zero point three. More than like oh my god, my math is. Take your time. Take a breather and tell. Yeah, so we are currently at one point two, and if we increase by zero point three and go to one point five, it's gonna be much much worse. It's living hell for us. It's gonna be okay for people in like the northern hemisphere and the global north, but not for us. So one point five is not even the bare minimum that we're supposed to be doing. And global leaders think that one point five is ambitious, which is a joke to me because. How is one point five ambitious? Because there are people's lives on the line. Exactly, and we can face the consequences right now. Yeah, and uh, so which is why internationally, Fridays for Future launched a campaign called uh, "Fight for One Point Five," mm-hmm. where we spoke about why it's necessary to fight for one point five. Because one point five is not even the bare minimum we're supposed to be doing, but uh, but we need to be under one point five. and we need like a just transition and equitable transitions and one of our top demands for reparations where um historically colonized uh, people are going to need to be um you know paid for climate funds and loans by historically colonizing countries like the UK and like Britain Spain. yeah and Spain and French and like carbon majors like US China who are responsible for majority of the population more US because more than population populations really not the issues because that's just the racism that we have been put under because these aren't even our emissions these are transported emissions so um carbon majors need to be more accountable for the pollution they create and the colonization of all of this they're doing Like the U.S. ships tons and millions of tons of plastic to Africa, so just because it's again shipping your emissions to another country and polluting another country. Yeah, it's not like Africa is not a dumpster, especially Kenya. This happens a lot in Kenya. It's like it's not a dumpster for you to ship your trash back to us. Yeah, I am you know overwhelmed by everything you have talked about today. 
Yeah, I know it's like really daunting news, but there are a lot of positive news as well. So it well, it depends on you know the positive news is it depends on the future we choose. Yeah, like the ozone is fixing itself, so that's good. Ozone is fixing itself, but you know maybe you know we help you know make those positive news. Yeah, we do, and I feel very inspired to be in a movement because the people I work with are inspiring. Their hard work inspires me to do better. Even when I get anxious, just talking to them, understanding why they fight, that makes me feel so much better. And makes me want to keep doing this because it reminds me why I'm doing this. And it's the people. We do it for the people. And it sounds super cheesy, but like I, I strongly believe that like love and friendship and us being united together is gonna change the world. I mean it is the more i travel the more i meet people it's like we are the same we want the same things and we essentially are looking for the same things and we have the same dreams and we want to connect with people the same way it's just you know some boundaries keeping us apart and from actually you know mingling with each other yeah yeah and showing that love that was such an insightful conversation with you disha and you know it brought into perspective so many things that are going on right now in the world and you know a lot of us have to pay attention to these things and thank you for talking to me today i'm really glad to have this conversation with you thank you so much for having me this was um i think it's a kind of minder because people can do so much together and it's so important to have these conversations all of us can you know fight this just believe in climate change guys <laughs> and believe in the power that you can make a change yes believe in the power that you can make a change as well i hope you liked the conversation as much as i loved being part of it and if you did go ahead and subscribe to yours curiously on apple podcasts spotify google podcast or wherever you prefer to catch up on your podcast to keep in the loop and show some love links to everything we discussed and notes with timestamps can be found in the show notes at insidetravelershoes.com/yours-curiously you can stalk disha and her amazing work on twitter and instagram at disha ravi with a double i which is at the rate of d i s h a r a v double i inspired to do your bit for the environment head to fridaysforfutureindia.com Want to know about this girl speaking to you right now? InsideTravelersShoes.com is your place. Or at the rate of Inside Traveler's Shoes on Instagram. Like this podcast? Keep up with the updates at Yours Curiously Pod on Instagram. Or if you prefer Twitter, updates on Yours Curiously and my other projects are posted at In Travel Shoes. Until next time, curious cats.